Well, good morning, everyone, wherever you are. Um, it's an absolute delight to be able to join you. Um, this is my first time here, so uh, it's great to uh, be at a sister church. And um, uh, greetings from City Reformed as well. Um, the text for this morning is Psalm 120. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 120. And uh, let me read this psalm before we begin. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, and I dwell in the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling place among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Please pray with me. Uh, our Father in heaven, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing to you. Lord, would you use the preaching of this word to encourage those who need encouragement, to chastise those who need correction, and Lord, even to bring unrepentant sinners, Lord, to a saving, uh, saving knowledge of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this psalm, Psalm 120, is the first psalm in a group of psalms that uh, we call the Psalms of Ascent. And uh, the Psalms of Ascent, there are lots of uh, theories as to what that phrase means, but essentially the idea is of ascending, of going up. If you've been to Israel, you will uh, know that Jerusalem is situated on a hill about 2,500, 2,600 feet. Uh, and in the biblical period, these 15 Psalms were, were sung on the journey up, up to Jerusalem for the great festivals like Passover and the Day of Atonement. And they were joyous occasions where the people of God gathered from all over to celebrate God's faithfulness, His kindness, and remembering His acts of salvation. Several years ago when uh, uh, we were living in England, as John said, a, a good friend of mine invited me to go to a um, soccer play championship playoff match. It's a, it was a big deal, apparently, um, between two English football teams, as they call it over there. So I went with him, and we headed off to a place called Wembley Stadium, which is an iconic place in London where the most important events are held, the biggest concerts and uh, the biggest sporting events like the Olympics. Uh, so it was a big deal. And it was fascinating to experience leaving the train at Wembley Station with tens of thousands of other people. We were all sort of packed together on this concourse that led up to the stadium. And as we approached, you know, we were, I was surrounded by people either dressed in light blue and purple, the West Ham fans, or this bright orange color, the Blackpool fans, and each group of people were singing their respective team songs like Forever Blowing Bubbles or We All Follow the West Ham or on the other side, Holloway's Tangerine Army and they would almost rival each other in volume. And I couldn't help 
even as an impartial and somewhat novice football fan, getting caught up in the euphoria, the excitement, the, 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 the rapturous singing. It would just get people fired up for this football match. And this was all in anticipation before we even approached the stadium, before the whistle had even blown. By contrast, in American football, if the Steelers are playing the Patriots, they'd just be cursing at each other the whole time. But anyway, um, in these football matches, these, these songs that these soccer players sing, the, sorry, the fans that they sing, the purpose of the songs were to generate excitement, to get people ready for something. And in a similar sort of way, that's what the Psalms of Ascent did for the people of God. They inspired and readied the hearts of pilgrims for worship. Now, some of you will be familiar with a lot of these Psalms of Ascent. They are famous. Uh, Psalm 121 is a favorite of many. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Or Psalm 127 um, uh, it, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders build in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards, the watchmen are, are vigilant in vain. And Psalm 133, it's a very short one. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Uh, it's no surprise that one scholar, famous psalm scholar, said this is the loveliest single group of songs in the entire Psalter. But if I were a betting man, I would venture to guess that our psalm this morning, Psalm 120, is probably not a favorite of most people's. In fact, many of you probably have never even read it or heard it. It is pretty dour and gloomy, other than an acknowledgement that God hears prayers. It's pretty dark, isn't it? Which begs the question, why on earth would you start a series of songs that celebrate the worship of God on such a depressing note, on such a sad note? And the short answer to that question is that the psalmist is being brutally honest. He is being honest about the place that he finds himself in his present circumstances. And that's something that is one of the great things about the Psalter is its honesty. It's the, the willingness to wrestle with life in the real world, as it were. And Psalm 120 is no exception to that. When we look at the psalm carefully, we find a person who is weary, who is tired from the constant battering of a pagan world that's trying to tear him down. It's the cry of a saint who is spiritually fed up with putting up with all the attacks of people who don't get him. If you look at verse 1, it starts, In my distress. That's how the psalm begins. That's how the whole series of the Psalms of Ascent, it begins in distress. And in the following verses, in verses 2 to 4, we are told what the specific distress is for our psalter, uh, our psalmist. And then in verse 5, this is sort of the, the, the desperate cry. Woe to me. Woe to me. And then immediately after that, we get the curious place names, Meshach and Kedar. 
Sometimes we like to avoid things we can't quite pronounce or things that seem a little bit strange, but these two place names are really important to, to, in understanding what the psalm is about. Meshech is a place way up in the north relative to the psalmist, way up in the north along the Caspian and the Black Seas. It's uh, referenced in the famous or maybe infamous Gog and Magog prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 39. And Kedar is one of the sons of Ishmael, who is, of course, the son of Hagar. And uh, the people of Kedar are not particularly nice. They are known as vicious, nomadic tribespeople who were ruthless and they would kill and destroy. And it is uh, told that they lived in black tents of all things. Why mention these two places? Well, the psalmist is symbolizing, if you will, the hostile and the godless world in which he finds himself. It's a way of saying that he could not have felt more isolated from his surroundings if he were exiled far away, living amongst these heathen people. That's how he feels. He feels exiled, isolated. He is a pilgrim who is discouraged by the day-to-day battles of living a life of faith in a fallen world and feeling so far away. I wonder if you can relate to that this morning. If you feel that there are days, perhaps even seasons, where you just are isolated, you feel distant, you feel like God is not there. This perhaps is your song. And I suspect, especially for many of us, that it's a poignant psalm for the current situations we find ourselves in today, in 2020. Not only are we living in one of the most polarizing and divisive times in our history, politically, culturally, but this pandemic has isolated us from each other. And we aren't even able to gather as a church as we normally do. We're constrained, we're limited in so many ways so that not only are we feeling spiritually exiled, but physically we feel like we are far. Enter Psalm 120. This is a beautiful little psalm that does two things. I think the first thing that it really gives us permission to do is to just be honest, to cry out to God, to let him know the situation that we find ourselves in, to just shout out our frustrations. But more importantly, it gives us a way forward. It teaches us how we can pray in and through trials, in the midst of difficult situations, in the midst of a pandemic, so that we can move from this feeling of exile and isolation to being in the presence of God, being encouraged by the people of God. So if you think about it, it's actually the perfect first song to kick off what we call the Psalms of Ascent. As we move forward in the Psalms event, there will be songs of hope. It gets more positive, I promise. And as we approach the end, 
the trajectory of these songs as we sing them as believers. We end with Psalm 132 where we celebrate being in the presence of God, within the dwelling place of God. Psalm 133, we get to celebrate what it's like to live in peace and unity with like-minded people, with believers, with brothers. And the last of these psalms, Psalm 134, is a celebration of receiving the blessings of God. That's where we will be. But for the time being, this psalm forces the weary pilgrim to live in the present, to learn how to pray when there is no shalom. John has told me that this church has been working through a series on what it means to pursue shalom as a church. And so if I could frame what we will talk about this morning, here's the question that I think we can think about as we approach Psalm 120. How do we live in a world where it seems as if there is no shalom? How do we live? What are some things that we can do when we find distress everywhere all around us? And there are three things that I want to briefly touch on that I think this psalm teaches us. The first is we are to hold on to prayer. We are to turn to prayer. We are to pray regularly. The second thing we'll see in this psalm is that we are to trust in God's sovereignty. Specifically, we are to trust that God sees injustices, that God will act accordingly. And the last thing that this, this text teaches us is that we are to hold on to the body, the body, the people of God, the church. So let's take a look at the first point here. In Psalm 120, verse 1, the first thing we learn is that we are to pray. We are to pray in such a way that it becomes our natural instinct. I think that's what we see in the first verse, isn't it? In my distress, I called to the Lord. That's the first thing he does, right? He instinctively cries out to God. He doesn't say, in my distress, I looked inwardly and wallowed, felt sorry for myself. He doesn't say, in my distress, I turned to so-and-so. He says, in my distress, I cried out to the Lord. Isn't it true that for many of us, when we are discouraged, the temptation is to do anything but to pray. We go from, for a run perhaps, to just clear our minds. We call a friend, a family member, someone we think will sympathize with us. We look for distractions. We surf the internet, we binge watch Netflix, we eat a lot of ice cream. Whatever it may be, the first thing oftentimes for us is not turning to God in prayer, but that is what the psalmist does. He cries out to the Lord in prayer. Another thing to point out here is that the crying out to God in Psalm 120, it, it's a meaningful prayer, isn't it? It's not a Hail Mary, as they say. It's not a prayer that's hopeless. It's not a prayer that's just screaming out, shouting out to God all the problems of the world. This is a prayer that is confident and is full of trust. And really important to note, it is a prayer that knows who is on the other end 
of these prayers. It's a prayer that believes wholeheartedly that the object of these prayers, the person to whom the prayers are going to, is capable of doing something about it. And that's Yahweh. In your English Bibles, it'll be the capital L-O-R-D. That's the covenant name of God. And for Israelites, when they say Yahweh, they instinctively, it brings back for them the memory of all the wonderful ways in which God has been their savior, their deliverer, their warrior. How God delivered them from Egypt out of slavery, miraculous ways. How God paved a way out of exile so they could return back to the land. It's hard to see this in the English translations, but I, just in Hebrew, understand that in that first line of the of this psalm, Yahweh or Lord is fronted. It's the very first word that occurs in that verse. And so it literally reads, to Yahweh, in my distress, I cry out. And then the next line, in the English it says, deliver me, O Lord, but actually it says, Yahweh, deliver me. It's a shout out to God. It's instinctive. One of my uh, boys, when he was just a wee lad, as they say, two years old, um, he shared a bunk bed with his older brother, and it was a, it was a, a, a huge deal. Um, I think um, everyone in the family remembers it because uh, it was the day in which um, the, the, the boy moved from the crib to the big boy bed, as we used to call it. And this particular child, one of the things that he had this fetish for was the upper bunk. He dreamed of being in that bunk and not the lower bunk. And so uh, we had to be warned many times, don't climb up there, you're going to fall. You're not old enough. But being the sinner that he is, when we weren't watching, invariably, he attempted to climb the ladder to get up to the top bunk. And apparently as he was climbing, his foot slipped, got caught in one of the rungs, and he fell back, and he was hanging upside down with a leg caught in the ladder. And he immediately shouted out, Daddy, Daddy. And of course, I ran as quickly as I could. And as I approached him and helped him uh, untangle his leg, he sort of explained to me as if I couldn't see what was going on. Leg stuck, Daddy, help. You see, I tell you that story because kids, they know, children know instinctively who to turn to. They cry out, Daddy. They don't pause and think to themselves, who should I contact in this moment of crisis? They don't think and analyze what is the situation that I am in. My leg is stuck. What's the next step? The first thing they do is they cry out for help. And that is what the psalmist does here. He knows that Yahweh, the covenant, loving God, he can and will, uh, he will deliver him. And it becomes, there's this instinctive reflex on the part of the psalmist to cry out to God as the first port of call. And that is what we are challenged with here today, I think. We need to instill, to inculcate into our own habits that same reflex to cry out to God as the first thing we do. 
there's another important lesson here that I want to just mention, and that is the question of why. This isn't blind faith. The psalmist knows who to call, but there is also a reason, there is a why that he instinctively turns to God in prayer, and that is this. He knows by experience that God will hear and God will answer. Again, the devil's in the details of the text, uh, and I think the ESV has it correctly. Um, the, it should be translated something like, in my distress, past tense, I called, I cried out to Yahweh, and he answered me. In other words, the psalmist can trust God because in previous times of distress, the psalmist cried out to God and God heard him. And the psalmist experienced what that was like for his prayers to be heard and answered, for God to intervene time and time again. And so it's only natural that the psalmist would cry out to God. And that's the way that prayer works, isn't it? The more we pray, the more we experience him answering our prayers and, and being faithful to us, the more we grow in confidence, the more we know the object of our prayers, he will answer, he will deliver us. And the result then is that prayer becomes instinctive. We gain that childlike faith that implicitly trusts God as my son did when he was trapped on that bunk bed. So how should we handle discouragement? Learn to pray. Learn to pray instinctively. Turn to God in prayer because he is the only one who can ultimately bring peace in the midst of turmoil. The second thing we are encouraged to do in this psalm is to trust God's sovereignty, to trust that his sovereign justice it will happen. If you look at verses three and four, what the psalmist is complaining about is a very real situation. There are vicious people who want to cut him down. They are spewing lies. They are saying horrific things. And it's getting to the point where he just cannot handle it anymore. You know the phrase, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. It's a rhyme that um, I think is meant to prevent kids from physical retaliation when they are being verbally abused, or perhaps even for us adults. Um, but I think we all know that the saying itself isn't true because words can hurt. In fact, words can be devastating. Words can rip apart families. Words can le leave wounds that last for a lifetime, which is precisely why it is our instinct to retaliate, to take matters into our own hands. And as we confessed in our confession in the reading, uh, we, we, we know that it's not right to retaliate. And also, another reaction, some of us, we slink back when we hear words like that. We feel defeated, we are discouraged, and neither of those are biblical responses. What this, the psalmist does here, I think, is the right response. 
The psalmist here, if you read these verses carefully, we see, a, we see a person who is clearly meditating on God's sovereignty and his just character. He's meditating on who God is, that God is faithful to his word and to his own being, that he will, in due course, bring judgment. And so for the psalmist, to pray this is to remind himself to let go of retaliation, to let go of hatred and bitterness and the need to respond. These are beautiful words that aren't easy, but that clearly exude a, a confidence, a profound confidence that God will respond emphatically in this life or the next. The metaphor used to exp express this is the coals of the broom tree. And uh, they are used figuratively to uh, remind the, the singer, the reader of this psalm of God's judgment. Uh, the, in the, the Near East, North Africa, the, the, the Middle East, if you go to that region, uh, they will know of the, of the broom tree. And the root of the broom tree was used to light up fires. And uh, travelers, legend has it, that they would, when they were traveling through, they would look for these to cook on. And even a story is told where the traveler on their return leg when they came back to that place, the embers of the coals were still flickering. The point being made here is that the arrows of the tongue, they are shot forth in an instant, but God's punishment against the deceitful tongue, God's punishment against those who tear others down, it will last for a long time. And the psalmist trust. The connection to the psalm is that he is going to trust his God's sovereign justice. And that is what gives him the ability to pursue peace in verse 6 and in verse 7, to not resort to hostility. It's the justice of God. It's a confidence in the justice of God that enables him to be able to shrug off all of the arrows that are coming his way. And it's a wonderful challenge for us, I think, that we are to commit our distresses, the specific distresses that we experience in life to God in prayer because we know his character and we know that he will make things right. The Apostle Paul uh, makes a similar point in Philippians 4, verses 6 through 7, which is a wonderful text about prayer do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition and thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And here's the key, the key little, little word, and, or the result of that is, the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard your heart. Paul is giving He's giving us a recipe for peace. Peace is the byproduct, it's the consequence that arises out of prayer. The logic of this text is when we cry out to God in our helplessness, that's supplication. When we recount 
who God is and think about the ways he's been faithful to us and we give thanks for that thankfulness. And when we let him know what our needs are, having done those things, we present our requests, then we are told that we will enter into guarded peace no matter what is going on around us. Even if there's a pandemic, even if the political systems are just driving us crazy. In Psalm 120, the psalmist is affirming that, the pr- that prayer is always going to be the answer. And so he starts out with that declaration, verses one and two, but then he's honest and he's expressing the, the, the difficult situation he finds himself in in verses two through four, but he knows that God will make things right. And so prayer becomes the linchpin. It becomes the tool, the weapon that helps him fight the daily grind of living life in a hostile world. The third anchor that I think we can hold on to in times of distress that we can learn from this psalm, for weary people, we need to turn to the people of God. That is the church. If you look at verses 6 and 7 and you had to summarize that in one sentence, I think you could say that the psalmist is spiritually homesick. He's weary of living amongst the people who are at odds with him, right? And I don't think you need me to tell you this, but we live in a world, in a country now, that is becoming more and more antagonistic to the church, to anything biblical, uh, a country that once used to champion the Christian faith is now becoming hostile to the gospel. And it's not going to be long before it's a crime to proclaim the truths of the gospel. I think in some ways it already is. According to a poll published by Pew Research Center, 50% of Americans identified loosely as having some sort of Protestant association 10 years ago. Last year, that number dropped to 43, 42%. And it is projected that by 2030, only 30% of Americans will say that they are affiliated with some Protestant denomination or faith. The psalmist also lived in a spiritually hostile world. But look where he turns to. Where does he turn to? What does he long for by way of encouragement in this life that he finds himself in, this situation? The answer is that he just cannot wait to be gathered with like-minded people, to, to pilgrim up to Jerusalem, to worship with people again in the presence of God. And the fact that he's still in Meshech and Kedar, metaphorically speaking, is driving him insane. He is sick and tired of it. He isn't hearing the word of God being taught. He isn't seeing or smelling the typical sacrifices that are made at the Temple Mount that are a shadow for us as Christians of what Christ will do, a pointer to him. He isn't under the means of grace provided in the Old Testament, and he longs for it. For us today, it's the church, isn't it? The church functions in that way. That's why we gather together as best we can. 
That's why Hebrews tells us, don't give up meeting as some are in the habit of doing, but do it all the more as you see the day approaching. Why do we do that? Because in coming together, in sitting under the word of God, in taking the sacraments together, praying and fellowshipping with one another, all of these things are designed to build us up in the faith, to make us strong, to revive our weary and parched souls. The temptation in this day and age, even as we listen to Zoom or Facebook or digital sermons and services, is to check out. But that's what we're encouraged not to do. The psalmist here, though hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, he cannot wait to be with the people again. I wonder if that's how you approach church. Is that your attitude in gathering with the body of Christ? Can you just not wait to worship again? It's obviously really hard in our current conditions, and and trust me, I feel that pain profoundly and acutely. Uh, There's this deep sense of loss and lament because of the disembodied nature of life in our present times. But the truth is that if we're not engaged in church life, somehow, some way, if we're not regularly fellowshipping and praying with each other, gathering together, even on digital platforms, our hearts will wander and end up in spiritual exile. We will end up in Meshach and Kedar. My friend who invited me to that championship uh, match at Wembley is actually a Christian. He was a vicar in the Church of England, uh, actually. Um, I was there the moment he received the tickets to go to this event, and you should have seen his face. He could not stop grinning. He was just drooling over these tickets, and then he proceeded to tell me how awesome it was going to be, how there were going to be tens of thousands of people and this cutthroat, like, do-or-die event, people cheering, the possibility of winning a trophy and moving up to the Premier League, and then, really, in a desperate attempt to get me to join him, he likened it to what it might be one day in heaven, whereas we sang Revelation 19, hallelujah, salvation, power, and glory belong to God. It's this wonderful picture of where we will one day end up Um, My initial thought was, you know, he's going to make a bad vicar. It's a terrible, blasphemous thing to say. But as facetious as the analogy is, months later when I entered and went up, ascended the concourse, went into Wembley, watched this match, flags flying everywhere, and the thrill of the the, the soccer match there, I got a tiny glimpse of, of what Revelation 19 might be like. But it got me thinking, more importantly, about why we are commanded to gather, why it's important for the church, the body of Christ, to be together. And I think one reason is that it prepares us for Revelation 19. It prepares us for the ultimate gathering of the people of God, where all through the Bible we are told The purpose of God's history is to bring people 
gather them together to Zion, to this place where we will be in the presence of God and worship him. A simple diagnostic question for us is this. Is this our heart's desire? Do we long to gather together as a church so that the praise and the proclamation of God and his gospel might be declared and would go forth? I hope the psalm gives you encouragement. I hope it gives you the courage to also be honest, to reckon with the world in which you find yourself in. But I, I hope that you see in here the wonderful way forward that the psalmist paves for us. The encouragement to be prayerful, instinctively and incessantly. The, the reminder that God is sovereign that he will bring about justice ultimately and so that the need to take matters into our own hands is completely taken off our shoulders. And lastly, the reminder that we need to love the church. We need to have a longing for that gathering. Let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for this psalm, the way in which it gives us wonderful practical wisdom guidelines for dealing with living in, midst, in the midst of difficult times, living uh, when we are discouraged. Would you sanctify us with your truth, Heavenly Father? Would you work this truth deep into our stubborn hearts so that we would be transformed into the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus? And it's in his name that we pray this. Amen.